Well, when Midwesterners like us take vacations, there are often uh, two destinations that we tend toward, either the ocean or the mountains. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people want to go to either the ocean or the mountains, and uh, both the ocean and mountains share some things in common. Uh, they're both very beautiful. They both can be very peaceful places, and they both can be very foreboding, and they both can become very frightening places to be. Uh, few things are as enjoyable and awe-inspiring and peaceful as being on the beach, uh, at the ocean, on a warm day with the rhythm of the waves, the occasional sighting of seagulls and all the sights and sounds uh, that accompany the ocean. But few things are as frightening as a violent storm rolling in from the ocean, growing waves battering the shore, a surging wall of water that threatens property and life. If you've ever seen a tsunami coming onto shore, you know that the ocean can be a terrifying place. Michelle's brother lives in Colorado Springs, and so uh, anytime that we have visited there, we have been treated to the beauty of the mountains and specifically the beauty of Pikes Peak, as her brother tends to make sure that any house that he lives in, Pikes Peak is perfectly framed in his living room window. And so we get to, uh, to look at that and take in uh, the incredible beauty of it. During, I think it was probably our first visit to Colorado Springs, we uh, Michelle and I, we, we didn't have kids at that time, and we decided to drive to the top of Pikes Peak. And the higher we got, the more beautiful the scenery was. Uh, at 10,000 feet, looking west, the view was so beautiful, uh, it almost did not seem real. If, uh, if memory serves me correctly, I believe the song America the Beautiful was inspired uh, by the writer of that song viewing uh, the scene that looked west from Pikes Peak. I might be wrong about that, but I think that's correct. And uh, if it is correct, I can understand that because it was uh, just stunningly beautiful. But the higher we got, the more frightening it became <laughs> as the roads narrowed and the guardrails disappeared and the drop-offs at the edge of the road were clearly drop-offs that were not survivable. And so, while Pikes Peak, I believe, is 14,000 and some feet, at 12,000 feet, a little over 2,000 feet yet to the summit, the mountain became more frightening than beautiful to us, and we sheepishly turned back toward the base of the mountain. Getting the car turned around was quite an adventure in and of itself, because as we were turning it around on the one-lane road, it felt as though the gravel was disappearing beneath the tires, and we may not be able to stop, but we did, and here we are. Uh, a couple of years ago, we took a uh, winter trip to Gatlinburg, and, and a winter storm came in while we were there. And, uh, I can tell you, uh, most of our trips to Gatlinburg, we had stayed down on the ground, but this particular trip, we were up in the mountains quite a bit, and when that storm came in, those mountains around Gatlinburg were absolutely terrifying. A mountain on fire is a terrifying thing. 
The same Colorado Springs several years ago had uh, horrible wildfires that tore through the foothills and into the mountains, and uh, it, was, it was a terrifying experience for people who lived there. A snow-covered mountain can be a really beautiful thing, but let that snow start to break loose and descend the mountain, and the resulting avalanche turns the beauty into terror. Today we're continuing in Hebrews, and we've come to the last section of chapter 12, uh, verses 18 through 29. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, we'll look at it here in just a few minutes. And in today's text, the author of Hebrews tells us about mountains. He first tells us about Mount Sinai, and then he tells us about Mount Zion. And we see in today's text how a mountain can either be beautiful and inviting and peaceful and reassuring, or a mountain can be foreboding and dangerous and terrifying. And so let's look at our text, Hebrews 12, uh, 18 through 29. Uh, I'll read, I think there are some of these that will be in bold, and we will read those together. So starting at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now verse 22 together. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel." Altogether, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28 together. Therefore, <coughs> since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. First we see in these verses Mount Sinai. And I want you to notice things the author reminds us of regarding Sinai. And you can uh, read these things uh, as they actually happened in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. I'm going to read a few of those as we uh, go through this today. Verse 18 notes that Sinai is a mountain burning with fire. It is a mountain of darkness, gloom, and storm. Exodus 19 describes it this way. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. And then Exodus 19, 18 says this, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. 
The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. Verses 16 and 19 of Exodus 20 tell us of a trumpet blast that grew louder and louder over Mount Sinai. Verse 19 of Exodus 19 tell us, and verse 19 of our text today tell us, that the people were so terrified by the voice of God from the mountain that they begged that no further word would come to them from the mountain. Deuteronomy 5, 23 through 27 described this, and it, described the pe- it describes the people designating Mo- Moses to speak to God for them. Here's what it says. The great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? So they say to Moses, go near, you go near, and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then you tell us what the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. Moses, you go speak to God. You come back and tell us what he says. We do not want to hear his voice directly anymore. I mean, think of that. Think of how terrified people have to be to say, no more. Someone else has to do this. We cannot stand to do this. Part of what God spoke to the people that they couldn't bear to hear was a warning. Verse 20 of our text says, they could not bear what was commanded. And here it is. If even an animal touches Mount Sinai... It must be stoned to death. Exodus 19, 12 and 30 records this warning from God. Put limits on the people around the mountain and tell them this. Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows Don't even touch them. Not a hand is to be laid on them. Just stone them or shoot them with arrows. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. And God reiterates this in Exodus 19, 21 and 22. Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. So get the picture of Mount Sinai. The Lord has descended in fire. The mountain is covered in smoke. It is shrouded in darkness and gloom and storm. There is a trumpet blast that is growing louder and louder. The people have been warned not to touch the mountain or they will die. It is no wonder that Deuteronomy 9 says that Moses himself experienced fear at Mount Sinai and that Exodus 20 indicates that the whole mountain trembled violently with many manuscripts saying that how that should really be translated is that all of the people trembled violently. When you take all of this in, don't touch the mountain. Moses, you go speak to God so that we don't have to. Fire and smoke and threats of death if the mountain isn't approached in the correct manner. When we take all of this in, it gives us a very clear message. 
And the message is that Sinai emphasized the distance that sin had created between man and God. Sinai clearly communicated there is a separation between God and man. And we understand something else very clearly. We understand that Sinai speaks of condemnation and judgment. Condemnation and judgment. It is dark. It is foreboding. It is frightening. Because Sinai reminds us of our sin. It reminds us of our separation from God. It reminds us that we are a part of the world that stands condemned before God. It reminds us that we have earned the judgment of God. We need to understand the cold hard truths that Sinai represents and that Sinai speaks to. But thankfully, we are not intended to camp out at the base of Mount Sinai forever. The foreboding truths of Sinai are meant to create in us a receptivity to a better mountain than Sinai that the author of Hebrews tells us about. It's meant to create in us a desire to leave this mountain of fear and to discover and to camp out at the mountain of joy. Sinai serves a very important purpose, but there is a better mountain. Verses 22 through 24 speak of this better mountain. It is Mount Zion. In Israel's history, Jerusalem was situated on Mount Zion. It was David's capital city. It was the site of Solomon's temple. Zion had long been celebrated as God's holy city. Here in Hebrews, Mount Zion stands for the heavenly reality that Jerusalem represents, the, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, God's true city. And it represents the new covenant fulfillment of all that the old covenant simply pointed toward. Know what the author of Hebrews shares in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and verse 22 lets us know that Mount Zion is very different than Mount Sinai. Sinai was a fearful place, but Zion is a festive and a joyful place. We read in verse 22, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And why are the angels in joyful assembly? At least in part, it's because of what verse 23 tells us. Mount Zion is the, quote, church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, and of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Church of the firstborn and uh, spirits of the righteous made perfect are both just references to godly people from every time and place, People like the heroes from uh, uh, Hebrews 11 who are now at peace in the presence of God having received the reward of faith in God. And so Sinai is fear and trembling, darkness and foreboding, the threat of death. Zion is joyful assembly and eternal life. Zion is 
a better mountain. And verse 24 speaks of other things that are better. Speaks of a better mediator and, a, and better blood. Verse 24 says that when one comes to Zion, they've come to quote Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. At Sinai, Moses represented the people to God and God to the people. Moses was the mediator between God and man. Moses, you go, you go talk to God. You come back and tell us what he says. Moses was the mediator. Moses was simply a mediator of a covenant that existed to teach people their need of the better covenant and the better mediator. Moses is great, but Jesus is greater. Because Moses and the covenant of which he was a mediator simply pointed to Jesus and the new covenant of which Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the better mediator than Moses, and Christ's blood is better blood. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, this reference to Abel's blood is a pretty interesting uh, reference. It, it could be a reference to the shed blood of the sacrifice that Abel brought to God. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, uh, Cain brought the fruit of the ground to God, and Abel brought uh, an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to God. And the Bible tells us that God was pleased with Abel and his sacrifice. He was displeased with Cain and his sacrifice. Cain became jealous. He killed his brother. So this reference to better blood could be a reference to the sacrifice that Abel made. It could also reference Abel's own blood that was shed when Cain killed him, and it might reference both. I think it's very possible that it references both. You see, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the sacrifice Abel brought because Abel's sacrifice, like all Old Testament sacrifices, simply covered over sin. It didn't actually resolve the sin problem. It didn't actually free anybody from sin. It just covered up sin. So, so Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's sacrifice Jesus' perfect sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice that didn't just cover over sin, but removes the guilt of sin, frees us from the bondage of sin. So Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel's sacrifice, and Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's own blood that was shed by Cain. Because here's what Abel's blood cried out for. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. When Cain ran... And, and he was found by God. God said, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance for the wrong that had been done. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. It cries out for mercy. And, and that's a good summary of why Zion is the better mountain. Because while Sinai speaks of distance between man and God, speaks of condemnation and judgment, while, while Sinai speaks of those things, Zion speaks of closeness with God. Through Christ, the enmity between God and man has been put to an end and we've been reconciled to God. 
Zion speaks of mercy and grace and intimacy and salvation. It's the mountain where angels rejoice because the faithful from all times and places have received their reward. Their faith has become sight. Salvation by grace through faith has been realized. Sinai is about justice and judgment. Zion is about mercy and grace. Zion is the better mountain. The new covenant, as we have learned all through Hebrews, is greater than the old covenant. Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, this covenant of mercy and grace, is greater than Moses, greater than the law, greater than everything that came before him. As we've said over and over throughout this series, it is all about Jesus who is greater. Zion is greater than Sinai because Zion is about mercy, grace, reconciliation. But there's an important realization that we need to have about Zion. And here it is. Those who hear the word of the Lord from Mount Zion have a greater responsibility. Here's what verse 25 says. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. Don't refuse him who speaks. It's a reference to Jesus, who in the preceding verse has said that his blood speaks a better word than Abel. Jesus' blood speaks of mercy and grace and reconciliation and the gift of salvation. But now the author warns that just because Zion is about grace instead of judgment, Don't think that Jesus can be refused. Don't think that you can turn away from Jesus and everything will be okay. Jesus cannot be refused. You can't reject Jesus. You can't turn away from Jesus and everything be okay. And the author explains that if those who were warned on earth, meaning the mountain from which they heard God's voice from Sinai and the mediator they had was Moses, and the message they heard was judgment, if, if they did not escape judgment, how much less, if those people did not escape judgment, how much less will we escape judgment when our message from God is from the heavenly Jerusalem, the true city of God? Our mediator isn't Moses, but Jesus who purchased our eternal salvation with his own precious blood. And the message that we have received isn't condemnation and judgment, but mercy and grace and reconciliation and salvation. They only had the types and the shadows that pointed to Jesus. We have Jesus. They have the types and the shadows. We have the fulfillment of everything that the old covenant they lived under pointed to Jesus himself. And so if we refuse, our offense is greater. 
And so our judgment is assured. Don't refuse Jesus. The most important question that every human being will face in life is this one. How will you respond to Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Don't refuse Jesus. He's the bringer of mercy and grace and reconciliation and salvation. But we have to receive him to receive all of those things. We can't refuse him. Judgment is certain for those who reject the message of Zion, who reject the king of Zion. But for those who receive him, they receive mercy and grace, reconciliation, salvation. They become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which is an eternal kingdom with the blessings of peace and joy and salvation. Look at verses 26 through 29 again, if you have your Bible open. At that time, at Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Like it was then, so it is now. The shaking of problems and persecutions reveal where people really are with Jesus. God's kingdom is an unshakable kingdom. And when we've truly received the king and entered into the kingdom, problems and persecutions, trouble will not shake us. We will not shrink back. We will not turn away. We'll remain committed to Jesus. Our faith will endure. Problems and troubles and persecutions have been part of the experience of believers throughout the history of the church. Between now and the return of Jesus, there will be more trials and troubles and persecutions. And the only thing that will survive the coming trials and troubles and persecutions, the shaking that has always existed on the earth and will continue to exist, the only thing that will survive is the unshakable kingdom of God. And the only way we'll survive individually is if we are a part of the unshakable kingdom of God. So the author says, don't refuse Jesus the king. Receive Christ and his kingdom. Be a part of the only thing that is not going to be shaken by the shaking that is happening on the earth. And verse 29 reminds us that Jesus, the Savior King, who brings mercy and grace and salvation, deserves for us to worship him with reverence and awe. And after telling us about Mount Zion, this this mountain of rejoicing, this mountain of festivity, this mountain of love and peace and salvation, somewhat curiously, the author reminds us at the end of this chapter, verse 29, that for the rebellious and irreverent, God is still a consuming fire. 
the Savior that brings mercy and grace and salvation, this Savior that deserves for us to worship him with reverence and awe for the rebellious and the irreverent, he remains a consuming fire. And this brings us to something important. I think maybe it's an important clarification of all that I have said to this point and all that the author of Hebrews has, has said to this point. And, and here's the clarification. The God of Sinai and the God of Zion are the same God. Zion is the better mountain, but Sinai is really important. You see, God is both just, Sinai, and merciful, Zion. God is both judge, Sinai, and Savior, Redeemer, Zion. We're not meant to reject Sinai. We're just meant to realize that Sinai was for the purpose of leading us to Zion. The knowledge of God's justice is meant to set us up to make us receptive to God's mercy and grace. The knowledge that God is judge is meant to emphasize to us our need of a Savior and to lead us to Jesus. And so we need to understand Sinai and Zion, both are needed, but Zion is greater. And I think this warning in verse 29 is a reminder to those who would forget that God remains a consuming fire. He is still the God of Sinai, just like he is the God of Zion. Today, I, it seems to me that many believe, and they will spread this message around to others, that God is a God of mercy and grace, and he is, but because they either are not aware of or they have rejected Sinai, they don't view God's mercy and grace as gifts to be received, but instead they view them as entitlements to take for granted. And so what they have come, the, the image they have come to have of God is of God as this benevolent creator who is okay with whatever. Hey, whatever you're into, that's, that's fine with me, God tells them, because I'm all about mercy and, and grace. Do, do whatever you want. I'm good with it. Mercy, grace. They go so far sometimes as to reject the need of a Savior. Because God's so loving, he would, he would never send anyone to hell. Especially not for something as silly as not coming to believe in Jesus. God would never do that. God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. But the entire appeal of Hebrews, the the author's appeal throughout the entire book is don't reject Jesus. Don't turn away from Jesus, the Savior. 
Because Zion does not let us off the hook for needing a Savior. Zion makes us more responsible to not reject Jesus. It doesn't give us license to take his grace and mercy for granted. If you're here today and you have bought into this idea that God would never judge anyone, God is a-okay with whatever, your sin isn't really a very big deal to God, you need to understand that God is still the God of Sinai. He's still a consuming fire to sinners who reject his salvation. But there are others who have an entirely different problem. Maybe because of a legalistic upbringing, maybe because of an unkind or harsh earthly father, maybe because of the lies of the enemy who sought to bring them under condemnation. There are others who their problem isn't that they have embraced Zion to the exclusion of Sinai. Their problem is just the opposite. They view God as only the God that is revealed at Sinai. They live in constant fear that God is against them, that God is angry with them, that God is itching to exact judgment against them. And if that's true for you, if, like if that's, your, if that's where you're living right now, that, that you live in constant dread and fear of God, let me just suggest to you that you're camped out at the base of a mountain that you are not supposed to stay at. You're not supposed to stay at an understanding of God that Sinai gives. Those lessons from Sinai were meant to lead you to Mount Zion. God loves you. He's merciful and gracious toward you. In Christ, he has provided for your reconciliation to him. Through Jesus, you can have every sin forgiven. You can be set free from the debt of sin. You can be set free from the guilt of sin. And you can even, even though a lot of us don't walk in this reality, you can even be set free from the tyranny of sin, the bondage to sin, by the Spirit of God. For those of you with this challenge, Satan wants you to only know Sinai. That's what Satan wants for you. He wants you to only know God at Sinai. But Sinai was entirely meant by God to lead you to Zion in the experience of God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace. Like those early readers of Hebrews who were tempted to turn back to the law to reject mercy and grace for law, Satan is trying to tempt some of you to stay at Sinai. But God wants to lead you to a full understanding of himself. And you only get that if you allow God to lead you to Zion. To lead you to Jesus. 
And once you've been led there, he wants you to stay with Jesus. Don't reject Jesus. The author appeals to those facing the temptation to do so. And for those of us here today who are facing similar temptations, the appeal is for us. Don't reject Jesus. Stay faithful to Jesus. Stay in the safety of his unshakable kingdom, this kingdom of grace and mercy, the kingdom of salvation and eternal life. God is the God of Sinai. He is the God of Zion. But Zion is greater. He wants you to understand Sinai, but he wants you to come to Zion. Why don't you stand